Good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, let's open those up to Matthew 27. Matthew chapter 27. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 26 this morning. Let's open up with a word of prayer. Father, we come before you grateful for the opportunity to sing your praises, to open up your word and to hear from you, to learn from you, to transform our lives based on what we see in your word. I pray the Holy Spirit would be here today, that he would incline our hearts to hear from you, to uh, be obedient to you, uh, to follow you in all uh, that you command of us, all that you show us in your word and Lord, help us to learn to love, live, and lead like Jesus. Lord, we love you. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen. Okay, so last week I mentioned that the Sanhedrin had two issues with Jesus' trial that they're going to have to try to navigate while they go through this mockery of a trial um, to get it to go the way that they wanted it to. Right? They're trying to maneuver through all this stuff so that the outcome comes the way they, they need it to. They had to, uh, number one, they had to convince the people of Israel that Jesus isn't the Messiah uh, and that he is worthy of death. And the second thing is they have to convince the Roman government uh, that Jesus needed to be killed as well. Uh, the reason for this is because Israel wasn't allowed to execute people uh, while existing under Roman rule. So the Sanhedrin might be allowed to put Jesus on trial, but no matter how that conviction came out in Jewish court, uh, Rome reserved the right to uh, execute uh, capital punishment. And so without Rome's approval, Jesus wasn't going to be executed. And so the chief priests and the elders, they're going to have to come up with a plan, and it's not going to be easy to pull off. Part of that is because the Romans don't care about Jewish religion. Right? Part like last week we saw that what finally did Jesus in in the Jewish court was a charge of blasphemy. And Jesus agreed with the statement of Caiaphas the high priest when Caiaphas asked him under oath uh, if he was the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus not only agreed with that statement, but he goes on to say in the future they would see the Son of Man, meaning himself, seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And by saying this, Jesus is saying that he is the divine one that was being spoken of by the prophet Daniel with the title Son of Man, the one sitting at the right hand of God. And he was saying that he was the Holy One that was being spoken of in the Psalms who would come back in the clouds. And when Jesus said this, that was all the elders and the chief priests needed to hear. They didn't believe that he was the Messiah, God's son, and they didn't believe that Jesus was God incarnate, and most of the people of Israel didn't believe that either. And so with that, they could charge him with blasphemy. And because uh, the Jews lived in a theocracy, right? because their laws were based on their religion, a charge of blasphemy could be a reason for execution. All right, so they had everything that they needed to, to kill Jesus. 
But if you were to bring that to the Romans and say, this man says that he is God, they would say, cool, which one? Right? Which one is he? We'll put him on the list. Because the Romans are a polytheistic society. They are unlikely to get bent out of shape because Jesus makes himself to be equal with God. They worship many gods. Even saying that he was God's son isn't likely to be an issue because demigods were a large part of Roman mythology. Right? So a guy saying that he was the son of God wouldn't have been far out of line with anything that they had heard before. So they have no issue with the, the part that the Jews take issue with, with Jesus. And on top of that, Pontius Pilate would have heard some stories about Jesus at this point. As governor of Judea, he would have heard about the man's popularity among the people. He would have either seen or heard about the triumphal entry where thousands of people are fawning over this man as he comes into the city. Right, So you've got this popular figure coming in and then you have the most, po the most powerful man in the Jewish nation bringing this popular figure in before him and says, kill this man. So he's putting Pilate, Caiaphas is putting Pilate between a rock and a hard place here. And he doesn't want to start a riot by doing the wrong thing. So how do you convince this man? How do you convince Pilate that Jesus deserves to die? Well, you have to tell him that Jesus believes himself to be the king of the Jews. Right? You have to tell him that he is a direct threat to Rome. That he's trying to raise up an insurrection to take over Caesar. Even that, though, isn't going to be enough to convince Pilate that Jesus deserves to be executed. He's going to do everything that he can to get out of condemning Jesus to death, but eventually, Pilate is just like the rest of us. He's got to make a decision about what to do with Jesus. And unfortunately for Pilate, he gives in to the mounting pressure of the people calling for Jesus' death. Let's take a look at it. Matthew 27, verses 1 to 26. When daybreak came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. After tying him up, they led him away and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that Jesus had been condemned, was full of remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood, he said. What's that to us, they said. See to it yourself. So he threw the silver into the temple and departed. Then he went and hanged himself. The chief priest took the silver and said, it's not permitted to put it into the temple treasury since it is blood money. They conferred together and bought the potter, potter's field with it as a burial place for foreigners. Therefore, that field has been called field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him whose price was set by the Israelites, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Now Jesus stood before the governor. Are you the king of the Jews? The governor asked him. Jesus answered, you say so. While he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he didn't answer. Then Pilate said to him, 
Don't you hear how much they are testifying against you? But he didn't answer him on even one charge, so that the governor was quite amazed. At the festival, the governor's custom was to release to the crowd a prisoner they wanted. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Who is it you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew it was because of envy that they handed him over. While he was sitting on the judge's bench, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for today I have suffered terribly in a dream because of him. The chief priests and the elders, however, persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to execute Jesus. The governor asked them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? Barabbas, they answered. Pilate asked them, what should, I then, what should I do then with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all answered, Crucify him. Then he said, Why? What has he done wrong? They kept shouting all the more, Crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that a riot was starting instead, he took some water, washed his hands in front of the crowd, and said, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. All the people answered, His blood be on us and our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, and after having Jesus flogged, handed him over to be crucified. There's a lot going on in this passage. And I'm not going to take the time. I could take three weeks, maybe, maybe four weeks, going through this to point out all the different nuances. I'm hitting it today and moving on. Um, so there's so much that I could go through here that I'm just not going to address. What I do want to do today is I want to focus in on what's happening with the three individuals who are mentioned in this passage. You know, you've got the crowds, you've got the leadership of Israel who are all worked up into a frenzy. They're saying some crazy stuff like, you know, put all the guilt for all that's going on on us and our children. Um, but for now, I want to focus on Judas, I want to focus on Pilate, and I want to focus on Barabbas. And most of our time is going to be focused on Judas this morning. Okay. Um, there are a couple of side points that I want to make regarding Pilate and Barabbas, um, but I want to focus most of our time on Judas this morning. So beginning with Judas, we see a man who is overcome with remorse after being used by the religious leaders to help condemn an innocent man. Right, he's broken by everything that he's done. Judas let his greed get the better of him, and he decided that betraying Jesus was worth 30 pieces of silver. And I mentioned that this was prophesied about, and it's also prophesied about that it would be thrown back in and they would use that money to buy the field that they eventually buy with that money. Presumably, Judas accompanies Jesus and the rest to Caiaphas's place, and they watch the proceedings. And after watching all that Jesus goes through, they see him taking these vi this vicious beating at the hands of his captors, right? Remember last week we talked about once he was condemned for blasphemy, they started spitting in his face and punching him and saying, prophesy, Messiah, who hit you? Right? So Judas is probably here watching all of this. They see all of this, and Judas is feeling regret. He knows that he has done something incredibly wrong, and he's looking to do something about it. And so what does he do? He takes the money back to the temple, and he tries to give it back to the chief priests and the elders. He's trying to make amends. He even confesses his sin to the chief priests and the elders. And they, unfortunately, fail him miserably. They say, what's that to us? That's your sin. That's not our problem. 
They say, see to it yourself. Right? That's your sin. They left him to deal with his own sin and left with that, Judas throws the money into the temple and then because he is so overcome with guilt and shame, he goes off and he hangs himself. As a side note, the hypocrisy of the temple leadership should not be lost on us when they refuse to put the money back in the temple treasury. Right, The blood money can be taken out of the temple treasury. It can be used to falsely accuse someone and have them brought up on false charges and then sent to their death. But when that money is brought back, it can't then be put back into the temple treasury because that's blood money. Like, that's hypocrisy at its finest. But what are we to make of Judas's actions here at the end of his life? He experiences remorse, he confesses his sin, and he tries to make amends. And so some questions that I've heard asked about Judas at this point is, does that mean that Judas is saved? Right? He confessed his sin, he acknowledged his wrongdoing, does that mean that Judas is saved? And unfortunately, no, it does not. It does not mean that he is saved. And this does not have anything to do with his suicide, by the way. If you happen to have a background in some religious denominations that believe that, that suicide is some sort of like mortal sin that you can't come back from, it's not that. It's not because of a suicide. Okay, that has nothing to do with Judas's salvation. We need to be clear that when we try to understand the gospel, we need to understand that remorse and repentance are not the same thing. All right, Matthew was very clear when he wrote this that Judas was f filled with remorse. And that is a different, I don't know the languages, the commentators that I read know the languages. They made it very clear that Matthew used a different word for remorse and repentance. Okay, it's not the same word. So he felt remorse, but he did not repent. Even in the confessing of his sin, that was not repentance in the way that we understand salvation. Paul states this in his letter to the Corinthian church. 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 10. Listen to what he says. For even if I grieved you with my letter, that word grieved, remorse, okay? Even if I grieved you with my letter, I don't regret it. And if I regretted it, since I saw the, that the letter grieved you, yet only for a while, I now rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because your grief led to repentance. For you were grieved as God willed so that you didn't experience any loss from us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly grief produces death. Does that make sense? So he experienced grief. He experienced remorse because of his sin, but godly grief leads to repentance and Judas did not repent. Feeling guilt and shame 
because you have sinned can lead to remorse. And remorse can and hopefully will lead to your repentance. But just feeling remorseful does not mean that you have gone before God and repented of your sin. And Judas felt awful for the sin that he committed. He was so burdened by it that he chose to die by his own hand then suffer through life carrying the burden of that knowledge. I mean, he was grieved by what he had done. He sought a couple of ways to be absolved of his sin. He goes to the temple. He confesses his sin to the religious leaders. And unfortunately, they didn't care because they were guilty of the same sin that he was confessing. He tries to give the money back. But that's like when you're little and like, I don't know if you have siblings or not, but when you hit your sibling and then they're like, I'm telling mom, and then you're like, no, 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 hit me back, hit me back, hit me back. Right? You're trying to make amends for it. But when you're doing that, you're trying to make things even, but the sin has already been committed. Right? The sin is out there. The harsh word, the physical assault, the gossip, the cheating, the lying, whatever your sin may be, when you unleash it into the world, there are no takebacks. You can't make stealing right again by taking it back to the store. Right? You've committed the sin. The wrong has been done. Judas can't make things even again simply by giving the money back. And Judas is feeling hopeless and he's realizing the hopelessness of battling against sin with the things of this world. He turned to men to find help and they failed him. Right? There is not a man or a woman in this world who can absolve you of your sin. Confess your sin to whomever you want to. They cannot absolve you of your, of your sin. I don't care who that, what they title they have in front of their name. Pastor, father, bishop, apostle, name it. Nobody can absolve you of your sin except for Jesus. He tried... To do it on his own by giving the money back and it didn't work. The only hope that Judas has to remove his sin and guilt is turning to Christ and repenting of his sin. And Judas never does that. Judas never did that. Overwhelmed by guilt and shame beyond his ability to bear it, Judas takes his own life and he died without ever coming to the point of salvation in Jesus. This is why Jesus said it would have been better if the one who, has, who was going to betray him had never been born. Judas went before God representing and presenting his own righteousness for judgment. And it ended in his condemnation and his eternal torment now you may be wondering if Judas could have repented and made things right before God given what Jesus said about his impending judgment right would it have been possible for Jesus for Judas 
to repent. And I believe that he could have repented. I don't believe that Judas' betrayal of Jesus was so bad that God would have rejected him outright. The blood of Jesus could cover that sin. But I also believe that Jesus knew that Judas wouldn't repent. And so Judas's condemnation was sure. That's why Jesus could make the statement that he made. Like, the judgment is sure because I know he is not going to turn. I know he's not going to repent. So it would be better for him not to have been born. So what does godly repentance look like? What if we're struggling with this guilt? What if we're struggling with this shame? I mean, Judas cried out. He, re- he, he cried out. He confessed his sin. He tried to make it right. What does it look like? Well, King David provides us with a good example of godly repentance in Psalm 51. If you want to turn there, I'm going to read it in its entirety. Psalm 51. So David penned this psalm after committing adultery. So he slept with a married woman. He got her pregnant. And he was trying to cover up his sin by bringing her husband home from war, which is where he should have been, and trying to get him to have sexual relations with his wife to cover up his indiscretion. When it wouldn't work because her husband was an honorable man, David had him killed. And so after committing adultery and then committing murder, not by his own hand, but by his order, I mean, this is King David, a man after God's own heart, right? So how does he repent before the Lord? Psalm 51 was penned in his repentance. It says, Be gracious to me, God, According to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion. Completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. For I am conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me. Against you, you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self. And you teach me wisdom deep within. Purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out all my guilt. God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. Then I will teach the rebellious your ways, and sinners will return to you. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God, God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not want a sacrifice, or I would give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart, God. In your good pleasure, cause Zion to prosper. Build the walls of Jerusalem. 
Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Did you hear all that was going on in that psalm? Like David acknowledges all of that fault. And he places all of that fault at the feet of God. He, he acknowledges that no one but God can cleanse him. He says, you know, create a clean heart for me. Right? He says, I, if you wanted a sacrifice, if there was something that I could do with my own two hands, I would do it. But you don't want a sacrifice. He says, what you want is a broken spirit. And my spirit is broken. And I have turned my face to you in my brokenness. And I have repented of all that sin. If Judas had gone to God like this, then forgiveness would have been his through the blood of Jesus. The blood that he was directly responsible for spilling. Our sin is indirectly responsible for spilling it. But his actions were directly responsible for spilling it. But unfortunately, Judas never saw Jesus as the Messiah. Not like that. He never saw him as being capable of forgiving sins, and so he never turned to him when his guilt and shame was more than he could bear. And I believe, I fully believe, that Jesus would have welcomed him betrayal and all, Jesus would have paid for that sin too and welcomed Judas back into the family of God, but Judas chose a different way. If you're here today and you are struggling with guilt and shame, Jesus will accept you as well. But you have to get beyond remorse and you have to move to repentance. If you're struggling with what that looks like, pray through Psalm 51. Make that your prayer night and day until your eyes are open to the truth of the cross, the beauty of it, the soul-cleansing blood has poured out of the cross and you can have salvation in it. You can have freedom from sin, freedom from slavery of death, but you have to have a heart like David that cries out to God to create a clean heart within you and renews a steadfast spirit within you. But it can be yours. And along with this, I want to speak briefly about Pilate and Barabbas. Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent of the charges that Caiaphas and the rest had used to get Jesus in front of him. Pilate knew that Jesus did not deserve to die. He knew that. He was convinced of it. It says in our passage that he knew that they were envious of Jesus, which is why they went through all of this to get him in front of Pilate. But Pilate was between a rock and a hard place as he didn't want to see a riot happen in his province. Rome would look at that as incompetence. They would look at that as weakness on his part, and a best-case scenario is that they replace him, and that would probably be the end of his career. Worst-case scenario, I mean, depending on how bad the riot was, they may kill him for incompetence. Uh, so it could, I mean, it could go really bad for him um, if this thing went poorly. 
so he's trying his best to get out of doing whatever the religious leaders want him to do without actively having to make the choice himself. I mean, I, you see all the sidestepping he's trying to do. He's like a, you know, a, a matador trying to dodge the charging bull. But unfortunately, it keeps getting closer and closer. Um, he's putting Jesus up next to Barabbas. He, he gave one uh, the chance to go free. He thought for sure with Jesus' popularity, right? Remembering the triumphal entry, he's like, you know, surely to goodness, with as many thousands of people were praising this man when he walked in, they're going to choose Jesus over Barabbas, but the religious leaders had already made sure, they'd already gone through the crowd, they made sure that the crowd was going to pick Barabbas over Jesus. And so these guys put the responsibility back in Pilate's hands. All right, he tried to pass it off onto the crowd, the crowd passed it back. And then, in a symbolic gesture, Pilate attempts to wash his hands of the responsibility that they had given him back. But unfortunately for Pilate, that's not how responsibility works. Right? That's not how it goes. In choosing to crucify Jesus at the behest of the religious leaders in the crowd, Pilate is now culpable for his part in Jesus' crucifixion. Pilate chose himself over Jesus. Pilate chose his well-being over doing what is right. Pilate chose his job over doing what is right. Pilate chose immediate peace over long-term justice. So Pilate can wash his hands all he wants to, but Pilate is just as guilty as the Jewish leadership and the crowds for Jesus' death. And my question here is, when it comes to the decisions that you make for Christ on a daily basis, how do you kind of measure up like Pilate? Do you ever compromise your beliefs as your boss makes you do something that goes against Scripture? Do you ever forego doing what is right because you don't want to upset the wrong people? Have you ever metaphorically fed someone else to the wolves so that you could protect yourself? In these instances, it's easy to dip our hands in water and believe that we were just doing what we were told. Right? My boss carries the responsibility for that sinful act that I performed because they are responsible for what I do at work. That is not true. You are responsible for your actions before God. Right? It's easy for us to believe that the ends justify the means. Right? As long as the outcome is good, it doesn't matter what we have to do to get there. It's easier for people to bounce back, right? We can think, if I get that person fired instead of myself, if I throw them under the bus, even when it was my fault, it's easier for them to get a new job instead of me so they can take the rap for that instead of me, right? We can justify all of that all we want to, but in moments like these, we're lying to ourselves if we believe that God isn't going to hold us accountable for these actions. Right? We are responsible for that. 
I mean, do we really think that God is going to look at whatever caveat that we have to offer for our disobedience and say, hey, no worry, big guy. We, always, we all have our, our bad days, right? I know your boss puts you in a difficult position, right? It's not a big deal. You know, I didn't actually mean that I wanted you to obey all my commands when I said that. What do you think that Jesus was referring to when he said in Matthew 16, verses 24 to 27, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For anyone who wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. For what will it benefit someone if he gains the whole world yet loses his life? Or what will anyone give in exchange for his life? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will reward each one according to what he has done. Right? That doesn't sound to me like every day of my life is going to be a walk in the park. Right? It sounds like sometimes it's going to be hard, that sometimes I'm not going to get what I want, and sometimes I'm going to have to suffer so that I can honor my God. Sometimes the decisions that we need to make for God are not going to be easy. They're going to put us at odds with the world around us, and yet we still need to make those decisions that he has clearly laid out in Scripture for us. Right? When the command is clear, and we know for a fact that to follow what these people want from us would be disobedience from God, we can't dip our hands in the water and say, it's on them, not me. That responsibility is ours to honor God in that moment. We cannot absolve ourselves of our sin or our, our responsibility simply by metaphorically washing our hands of what we think is our responsibility in it. And finally, to Barabbas. <clears throat> Jesus stood next to the man who was actually guilty of the crimes that the Jewish leaders had accused Jesus of, and Jesus goes to the cross instead of Barabbas. Right? He was an insurrectionist. He was the one that was actively trying to overthrow Rome. He was a murderer. And yet, he goes free, and Jesus goes to his death. Jesus took his place on the cross, and while he was there, Jesus faced the wrath of God so that anyone who would repent of their sin and put their faith in him would not perish but have everlasting life. We don't know anything else about Barabbas other than that that day he went free. But we can take from this moment in Barabbas' life as our symbol for freedom. Like Jesus, we could, put, we could easily put Chris Hamblin in that moment. Jesus or Chris Hamblin. All right, Jesus took Chris Hamblin's place on the cross. Put your name in there. If you're a follower of Christ, Jesus went to the cross instead of you. Jesus went to the cross. He took God's wrath so that we don't have to. He made a way so that the guilt and the shame that Judas felt isn't something that we have to endure anymore. Romans 8.1 is clear. 
that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So yes, while we should feel bad when we sin, while we should feel remorse, and that remorse should lead us to repentance, we do not need to feel the burden of it the way that Judas felt it anymore in Christ. And if there is anybody here today that is suffering through that without Christ, there is freedom in Christ. The cross is there. You're open to take this salvation that has been offered to you freely. You don't have to wallow in that guilt and shame anymore. You just have to confess it. Do you need an example? Read Psalm 51. Cry that out to the Lord and open your heart to Him and He will come in and He will cleanse you. And He'll be your Savior. You can follow Him forever. You no longer have to experience this guilt and shame that will weigh you down. And you'll never find another place to get rid of it other than Christ. If anybody needs to talk about that, come find me. Because I love you guys and I don't want you to experience that. If you have questions about salvation, come find me. I'd love to answer that. I'd love to pray with you through that. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for the cross. Lord, again, I'm I'm sad glad for the cross. Sad that my sin made it necessary, but glad that Jesus was willing. I'm grateful that we don't have to suffer the way that Judas suffered with his guilt and shame. I'm glad that you have made it abundantly clear in your word that there is nothing other than Christ that can take away that sin, that can take away the guilt and the shame. And so, Lord, if there's anybody here today that is struggling with guilt and shame and they're striving to remove that in their own power or they're seeking somebody else on this earth that... To, to remove it for them, I pray that their eyes would be open to the reality that there's none of that. We don't have the strength. Nobody else has the ability to absolve us. That only comes from you. And Lord, if there's anybody that is thinking about salvation today, looking to come from death to life, I pray that the Holy Spirit would work in their heart, Lord, that today would be the day of their salvation. That they would love you and serve you and glorify you in all that they do. Lord, we love you. We pray that we serve you well. It's in your son's precious name that I pray. Amen.